Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joyce Vance, Jill Winebanks, Kimberly Atkins Store, and me, Barb McQuaid. Hope you've seen us all in our amazing Sisters in Law merch. It's time to order. Go to politicon.com slash merch where you can get yourself a hashtag Sisters in Law t shirt, hoodie, and much, much more. I have the sticker on my laptop uh, while I uh, record this podcast. So lots of fun items there. Today we'll be discussing the future of voting rights the latest news out of the January 6th committee, and the accelerating state investigations of Donald Trump. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. Uh, but before we get to the serious news, I actually have um, a, a pop quiz for all of you, mostly because I want to check myself. I think that there are a lot of words in the English language that I pronounce wrong, and I know they're wrong, and I, I say them wrong anyway, because to pronounce them right just sounds wrong to me. Um, Kim, you got me thinking about this with the word often, um, we had a little yeah. conversation about that earlier. Yes. There's often versus often. Will you remind mm -hmm. us what, what your conclusion was there? I was told that often is the correct pronunciation, that the T in that word is silent, kind of like soften. Mm -hmm. I actually looked that up and it said until people could read, it was always pronounced often. And then when people saw, oh, there's a T in there, they started saying often. <laughs> But I think the preferred pronunciation in the U.S. is often. And that is the way I say it. So, all right, I'm going to call myself correct on that one. Jill, I've got one for you. You are our um, historian of the women's liberation movement. And so how about this one? Sexual harassment or harassment? Harassment. Yeah, that's the way I say it, too. But is, I think that's employment lawyers sometimes say harassment. Yeah, I I've think they that. probably do. But and. And is it because wrong. we're both Midwesterners that mm. we say it that way? Regional dialect. There is always that, yes. Yeah, that's a but possibility. But harassment too. sounds so pretentious to me. Well, there you go. So. I, that's, I think that's one of these reasons why, even though some of these words, um, I know I'm saying them wrong, I, I, I say them wrong just because if you say it right, you do sound like you're trying too hard to demonstrate how you know erudite you are. Here's one. Joyce, mm. I'll ask you this because uh, speaking of regional dialects, we sometimes have differences in the way we pronounce words. Here's one. When you get dressed in the morning, of course, you're still in your yoga pants for days on end. But <laughs> most of us, when we get dressed um, in True. the morning, we put on uh, our garments or this word spelled C-L-O-T-H-E-S. What do you, how do you say that word? I would say close. Is that one even up for grabs? Well, so you close? say close as in close the door? Close the door and put yeah, on your yeah, clothes. So, you know, I know plenty of people who say clothes. And if you look it up in the dictionary, I think they say, say clothes. But if you were to say clothes in my hard scrabble neighborhood where I grew up, you'd get beat up for saying that. Do any of you say clothes? I, I think that's Do any right. of you say clothes? No. I do not pronounce the TH in clothes. All right. No. Well, I'm feeling no. better. And I've got every region in the country behind me because I grew up in Los Angeles, went to college in Maine, and then, you know, came to Alabama via Virginia and Washington, D.C. I've never said anything but clothes. It would feel pretentious. I bet everybody in, uh, in Britain clothes. says clothes, and they probably look down upon us for saying clothes. <laughs> that clothes. might be true. It's like, the people who, it's like the people who pronounce the H in white. Mm. You know what That's I mean? That's going to be it's my just, bonus round. What about... <laughs> <laughs> right. So I have a, a very good friend who is just the rules follower from like, like you wouldn't believe. She's a wonderful person. And she's the only person I know who actually pronounces the H in all the WH words, right? Like when and where and why. Uh, do any of you pronounce those? Uh, no. I mean, whet no. your appetite. No. <laughs> yeah. Which, Absolutely which? not. No. no. 
Yeah, I, I don't think oh, so either. I'll, I'll tell goodness. you a quick story. When I was in college, I had a friend who was from New York, and he criticized me for pronouncing uh, three words the same way. There was um, Mary, the, the girl's name. There was Mary, like you marry your your husband and your spouse. Yeah. And then there's Mary, like Merry Christmas. And he asked me, how yeah. do I pronounce those three different words spelled very differently that he pronounced differently? And I said, Mary, Mary, and Mary. Mm-hmm. And you were right. <laughs> I just, Absolutely I got, right. Um, I'll go, go back to Kim. Kim, I've got one last one for you. What what sure. month follows this one? See, it's the... Okay, so <laughs> I have to explain this because there are only two words in the English language that I cannot pronounce. I know. I'm with you. This one's really hard. One, is, one is the opposite of urban and the oh, other is the, rural the juror, second... Like the rural juror. Right. And the second is the second month of the year, because when you put an R yeah. and I put a U in yeah. the middle of, of, of a couple of R's, yeah, it's wrong. my mouth is just like, nope, I'm out. So as so, a result, do you do what I do and just say, <laughs> I say I, February. February. Thank you. Who says February? That's ridiculous. <laughs> do any of you say February? February. Some, Absolutely sometimes not. Sometimes I do. I actually do. My word is R-O-O-F. Would oh, you please pronounce roof for that roof? correctly oh. for me? Okay, so this is a regional please. one because I used to say roof mm. because I am from Michigan, mm, but roof. then I moved to the East Coast and I've been forced to say roof. It's the same thing with, I used to say route, R-O-U-T-E, yeah, because route. I'm from Michigan. And then I moved to Boston. And if I said route 128, people would look at me like I was from <laughs> Mars. So I had to learn to say route 128. Mm. And I've changed some things because I moved. Be true to your school, Kim. Y'all, my favorite one is W-O-L-F. How do you say that? W-O-L-F? Wolf? I say wolf. Mm-hmm. Wolf. What do you say, Kim? Wolf. So my, my best friend, my law school best friend, who's from Southern Virginia, says woof. And it's so adorable. We've been making fun of her for decades now, but it, she maintains that everyone where oh she's gosh. from says woof. I'd have to so harass hmm. someone who did that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we do constantly. I love this stuff. This was a great idea for This was for great. Us. Next time we'll discuss whether the, the woof drinks milk or milk. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> The Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act were combined into one bill and were voted down by the Senate on Wednesday night, striking the fatal blow to Democrats' efforts to pass major voting rights legislation. Democrats managed to get the combined bill titled Freedom to Vote, colon, John R. Lewis Act debated with a simple majority vote instead of the usual 60 votes required to advance to debate by using a complicated procedure that I'm not going to go into. But despite Democrats' creative procedural workaround, 60 votes were still required to end debate, and the legislation was, as expected, unanimously blocked by 50 Republicans and supported by all 50 Democratic senators. Schumer's subsequent move to hold a vote on changing the Senate filibuster rules also failed with all 50 Senate Republicans, and this time two Democrats, of course, Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, voting against the plan. The bottom line, the proposed legislation failed to become law, so I want to get to the real key question of what's next for protecting the rights of voters in federal elections, but I want to start, Joyce, with you asking... Before we discuss what comes next, please explain why these two combined bills are needed and 
if they had passed, how it would have protected voting access, election administration, redistricting, and campaign finance. Yeah, you know, these two bills, these are the the combined House bills altered a little bit, but essentially they're designed to address the four key pressure points in voting. That's registration, your ability to stay registered once you're registered, your ability to access the ballot box and cast a vote, and your ability to have that, that vote actually counted. So these are the critical steps that are under attack. And the John Lewis Act would have renewed the Voting Rights Act, which was eviscerated by the Supreme Court in the Shelby County case. In that opinion, uh, the court said that Congress had relied on old data and ignored all of the massive improvements in discrimination. And, you know, the chief justice told us that there was no longer voter suppression in the Deep South. Um, And so because of that improvement, he decided that there was no need for the preclearance provisions of Section 5 to continue. The John Lewis Act would have restored the act and backed it up with newer data. The chief justice was wrong. Subsequent elections proved that. Democrats had collected data so that the newly what they hoped would be the newly passed bill, could survive court review. And it's worth underlining that until the Shelby County case, there had been overwhelming bipartisan majorities that had repeatedly passed renewals of the Voting Rights Act during Republican presidencies. It's not like this notion that everybody in America should be able to cast a vote was controversial until Republicans decided that they thought they could make some headway. The second part of this act that's now dead uh, on the floor of the Senate was the Freedom to Vote Act. It was a significantly watered down but still very important version of the For the People Act, which the House passed as H.R. 1, the first introduced act of this Congress. It standardized voting election laws across the country to to improve fairness. Um, It expanded access through mechanisms like absentee voting. For instance, in Alabama, it's very hard to vote absentee. It opened that up a little bit. And that part of the bill would have gone a long way towards ameliorating the suppressive impact of these new laws, over a hundred of them, that have passed in in, uh, Republican, predominantly red state legislatures, that suppress the right to vote in the wake of the 2020 election. So a lot of really good pro-democracy measures. You know, it didn't matter who you were, if you were Republican, Democrat, or something else, these bills in combination enhanced all of our rights to vote now on the cutting floor of the Senate. So, Barb, let's look at why did Republicans say they were voting against passage and what was the real reason for their opposition and what impact on the laws recently passed by the 19th, you know, Joyce just mentioned that there were over 100 laws passed based mostly on the fraudulent claims of fraud in the last election. Um, How would these laws have helped counter those uh, restrictive laws. Yeah. So, Jill, there's been, I guess, basically three categories of arguments I've heard. You know, different members of Congress from the Republican Party have offered different reasons. One is that states should decide how to run elections, not the federal government. Um, And generally that's true, but that doesn't mean the federal government can't. You know, we had the voter Motor Voter Act, and we've had other federal legislation protecting the right to vote throughout our history. So, that really comes down more to a political philosophy or even just um, uh, a way of looking at the world that preserves the status quo, I guess. Uh, another argument has been that this is a democratic power grab, that um, 
they don't want the Justice Department and a, a democratically appointed attorney general to have the power to pre-clear redistricting plans. You know, Joyce mentioned that the John Lewis uh, Voter Advancement Act would um, reinstate Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which was eviscerated by that Shelby County decision that said, before states that have had a history of discriminating against minority voters can change district lines, they have to get their plans approved by the Department of Justice. That's the one that got knocked out um, in the Shelby County case, it would restore that. Um, and the Republicans say, we don't need it. Um, we don't want to give the Justice Department the power uh, over our states to have that. And then the third um, line of arguments, I think, is that this is unnecessary. Uh, voter suppression isn't real. It's simply a scare tactic. Uh, one said it's a manufactured problem. Nothing about these state laws are too restrictive. And, you know, one that always gets me, and again, you remember, we've, we've been talking in recent weeks about some um, argument tips, or if you're debating someone, or things to look for when someone advances an argument. We've talked about, you know, straw arguments and things like that. Here's one, and I, I don't know what you call it. I, I guess I'll call it misdirection. But one of the things they harp on all the time, a columnist in um, Detroit recently wrote about this and flagged this as the issue. You know, these voter suppression laws have a lot of issues in them that are problematic, not the least of which is it gives the power to legislatures to say, eh, we think there was fraud. We're just going to throw out what the, the voters did and we're just going to substitute uh, our choice for, for theirs. That one is, is really frightening. But it has a lot of other things like removing... Um, Ballot boxes for uh, dropping off absentee ballots in very populous areas like Fulton County, Georgia, where, uh, you know, Republicans uh, lost the Senate election and are damned if they're going to let that happen again. Um, so they're doing all kinds of things to try to reduce voter access in areas that are primarily African-American. But this is the misdirection. So they've got, I mean, really dozens of, of issues that are making it harder to vote. You know, you, um, fewer absentee, fewer days to vote, fewer options for mail-in voting, lots of things that make voting more accessible. The one they always pick on is voter ID. Um, voter ID is something that uh, people disagree with because it does make it more difficult for someone who has you know, their polling places changed or they moved or someone who might be more transient to vote. But it's by far not the only thing that is so problematic about all of these things. But it is clearly one that resonates with the Republican base because it comes up all the time. And they say things like, I don't know what these Democrats are talking about when they say voter suppression. I don't think it's that big a deal to require a voter ID before you vote, as if that's the only issue that's in these things. And I think they know that that's a winning argument. So they focus on that one. Um, I feel like that ship has sailed with voter ID, that that is here to stay. But there's so many of these other ones that are there that really have no basis in uh, other than to make it harder to vote for people who live in communities uh, where people are um, more likely to not be working a nine to five job where they can get to the polls. Um, and uh, favoring de uh, Republican Party demographics. Um, you know, the reason for this all, Jill, I think, is uh, it's a power grab, and they're using these voter fraud allegations as a pretext to get them through. Um, 
Mitch McConnell once said, if voting rights aren't broken, we shouldn't fix them. And that's what he says about this. But states are doing it like crazy in all of these states to make it harder to vote. And it's all based on this false narrative of widespread voter fraud, which even William Barr, when he was the attorney general, found not to be the case. Can I jump in on voter ID? Because I think you're right, Barb, that that ship has sailed. Even Joe Manchin included a voter ID requirement in in the requirement he put through the Senate. But, you know, although it might seem to me like it's really easy to have a driver's license, if you're old, if you're poor, there are a lot of people who don't have driver's licenses. And so in my district, what happened after the Shelby County case was that Alabama had a Voter ID Act ready to go. And as soon as the, the court ruled against Section 5 in Shelby County, Alabama imposed this really restrictive ID requirement. So a 94-year-old African-American veteran down in the part of Alabama um, close to Shel- Shel- to uh, Selma in our Black Belt was unable to vote for the first time his, in his life. He had voted in every election from the time black people won the right to vote until that election. And he was not the only one. We heard stories about people who were older, people with disabilities, because that ID was so restrictive. And I recall that when Texas passed its act, you could use your gun license, but not your your college ID (laughs) as an ID to vote. So although I think Barb is right that that's around to stay, we need to be very discerning about different kinds of ID requirements and insist that only ones that don't have a discriminatory impact stay and I wanna, in place. I want to jump in here, too, because the devil is in the details. You can prove where you live with a, any number of things. You can do it with a utility bill, a piece of mail. Um, uh, there are lots of things that are not necessarily a photo ID. That's where the rub is, right? That's where a, a federal judge in North Carolina declared that a voter ID law was cr- crafted with surgical precision, to focus on black voters. And it's not just poorer and rural people, although it does disproportionately affect poorer and rural people, uh, people of color. it, It wasn't an ID, but one thing I always think about is the fact that my dad, who is a professional middle class man, uh, One of the most intelligent people that I've known, you know, ran a union for his entire career. Um, When the passport requirement, again, I'm from Detroit, which is an international border state, and there was a requirement. When I grew up, you could go to Canada with just your driver's license. But then a few years Did you go over there when you were 19, Kim? I did. I did. <laughs> Say no I'm more. not going to lie. Say no more. Because in Ontario, the, the drinking age, it, look that up. Anyway, so um, my dad, <laughs> you know, my family owns a boat and they would go in the Detroit River, which is international waters. Well, they, they changed the law a while back that requires a passport for that. And my dad didn't have a passport. So to get a passport, much like for a lot of people to get a driver's license, you need all kinds of things, including a birth certificate. Well, my dad didn't have a copy of his birth certificate. My dad was born in a county in Arkansas that had 400 people. He went to, so we were trying to figure out how to get a copy of this. So it's like, well, you need like a school record or something to to prove that you can, you know, to submit to the state uh, of Arkansas to get this okay well he my dad went to get this when he lived in arkansas he went to a one room schoolhouse that was k to 12 wow <laughs> so they're like okay wow. we'll call the school to get the record well the school burned down sometime in the 60s 
So we had to keep searching. Finally, I tracked down some library that had microfiche copies of report cards from this one room K to K to 12 schoolhouse in rural Arkansas and found a copy of my dad's uh report card which was very cute wow. by the way like he he did very well um but <laughs> but i mean so this is us middle class family i you know with means with the ability with access to the internet with people helping out it took months to get this settled so that he could get his passport so imagine how many people who are trying to get a, a driver's license who's never had one, never needed one, never driven. But suddenly they're putting this requirement, plus it costs money, which in my opinion is a poll tax. So it, yes, I'm not going to give up on this voter ID. I don't think that it should be a done deal. I think that it's one of the most purposeful, surgically, uh, surgically precise ways to try to stop Black people from voting. I think we've given everybody who's listening real grounds for knowing why they should oppose these restrictions, including voter ID. And it is one that people say, well, what's so big a deal? You need a, an ID to get on a plane. Why not to vote? And I think, Kim, you've laid it out. Joyce, you've laid it out. And it is because the way they've written the law, it doesn't allow you to use, for example, your student ID but it does your gun ID. So that's why it needs to be changed. But let's get to the heart of this discussion, because despite the basic premise of any democracy that majority rules, with the filibuster as currently configured, that isn't how it works here. Our founding fathers had no filibuster rule, and at some point after it was invented, it required 66 votes to close debate to pass a law, and it required actually debating rather than just saying, I filibuster. Now it requires only 60 votes, which is, of course, nine more than a majority rule would require. And it has so many carve-outs now that, you know, for example, you can get Supreme Court nominees confirmed without 60 votes. And so why is it for our very fundamental principle of voting that we don't have a carve-out, why are we able to block it? And so now that it is blocked by this, what can happen? Kim, take us to that hard question. What can the president or Congress do? I know we've talked about, or there is talk about, amending the Electoral College Act, uh, but would that be enough? Or is that just something that's needed but isn't going to solve the voting rights problem? Yeah, look, uh, the Electoral College Act, uh, that would make it more difficult uh, for um, on, on a January in a January 6th situation for the vice president uh, to be swayed to try to allow challenges um, to electors. It would raise the threshold to 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 lodging these types of uh, objections to certifying the election results. I feel like that, sure, yeah, let's do that. That is a drop in the glass that is empty and has a hole in the bottom that we talked about in the past. <laughs> I mean, that's just such a tiny little part. It may possibly stop another January 6th. We need to do so much more than that. In addition to the Shelby County hole that is in the Voting Rights Act, there is also a Brnovich hole that prevents people from even trying to stop policies that have even been put into place that are blatantly 
uh, racially discriminatory. There are so many things wrong with voting access right now. And sadly, there isn't a lot that the president can do with his executive authority to fix it because federal voting is under the purview of Congress and local voting is under the purview of state laws. So you have to press every single one of your lawmakers to say that this is an important issue and we want something done about it. That is really the only way. The filibuster is a relic that has been used time and time again to protect the interests usually of Southern, uh, a minority of Southern uh, members of the Senate who used it primarily to block things like voting rights and civil rights. Um, It needs to be gone. I think that um, the two Democratic senators who oppose changing it are fully aware of this. And so they have to explain to their uh, constituents why they believe that that should stay, uh, that that is more important than voting rights. But it's tough right now. I don't know what the path is. Um, I'm not even sure that there is really a path even for Electoral College Act reforms at this point. The Senate is just a wasteland for, for actual work that needs to be done to to make our democracy better. Um, So I'm not sure what the answer to that question is, Jill. So Barb, Joyce, you want to weigh in on what might be done to help save democracy? And I really do think I'm not overstating it when I say if we don't get voting rights fixed and we don't fix this ability of a minority to stop even voting on or even debating legislation, the deliberative body that used to be the Senate will no longer exist. What what can somebody do? What is there to do? Is there anything? You know, it seems to me, Jill, the only thing we have is um, our democratic process and the people. You know, I think one of the reasons we're seeing all of these creeping power grabs by Republicans is they can see the future. They see demographic changes in the United States. They see that Republicans are not winning the popular vote. They're only winning because of the Electoral College. They're no longer able to win state houses or seats in Congress unless they gerrymander to rig the vote by loading up districts. You know, they they crack uh, majorities and they pack districts so that they can dilute uh, the power of, of uh, minority voters or they can cram them all into one and minimize their value. But I, I think that the public... Um, to the extent they are paying attention, are outraged by that. And I think that's the problem is the paying attention part. You know, here in Michigan, we just had a ballot initiative that um, it creates an independent citizen commission to do all of our redistricting in an effort to eliminate gerrymandering. And, you know, it's a messy process. And there are lots of groups who are unhappy with the new maps because, uh, you know, it used to be we had this and now we have that. But at least it's democratically done and it's not done in, 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 you know, there's bipartisan and independent representation on the commission. Um, And and that's the way it ought to be done. We're a democracy. And so um, I I think that they they fear the future. They fear they're losing power. And so the only way to retain power is to cheat. And I think public information, public awareness is the way we expose that. And I think at some point the left and the moderate middle We'll say enough is enough, but it doesn't happen on its own. You know, we saw a lot during Martin Luther King Day of the the quote that I don't think it originated with him, but he popularized the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Um, and a lot of responses to that, including from me, that said, "Yeah, but it doesn't bend by itself. Um, we, you, we can't just wait for it to happen. It doesn't. It isn't like some uh, natural phenomenon that just happens. It only happens because of the work of real people." And so. I think all of us have a duty. I know, Joyce, you've made it a New Year's resolution to do all you can to protect voting rights. And I think for all of us, 
doing you know, voter protection work or registering voters, working at the polls, all of those things are critically important. Yeah, I mean, I think it's become more difficult to have confidence that it will be easy to vote in this year's midterm elections and in future elections. But I have to say that I have not given up hope, in large part because there are so many incredibly smart people focused on this issue and making it work. And, you know, Jill, to your question, you asked what can the president do? I think he has some limited ability to act through executive orders to impose some of the pieces of what would have been in this act. That's very limited. I do think that it's likely that we'll get electoral college reform um, through the Congress because there has been some suggestion of Republican support for that. That worries me a little bit because, you know, just with, with this crew of Republicans and Mitch McConnell, you could see them passing that act and claiming victory and, and putting on the mantle that the Republican Party is the great protector of voting rights. And that would, of course, be absolute garbage. So I think what Biden has to do is use the bully pulpit of the presidency to keep this issue front and center. I don't think he should miss an opportunity to point out that when the Republicans had the opportunity opportunity to protect everyone's right to vote, they failed to do so. Even in the wake of January 6th, even in the wake of what we see happening in the states, Republicans failed to protect your right to vote. And then I think it's going to be incumbent upon him to support, much as, as I intend to do and a lot of other people intend to do, the opportunity of individuals to support this. I know that Joe Biden is surrounded by really smart advisors on this issue, and so I think we might see him do some public education. For instance, there are steps that you can take after you've registered to vote to make sure that you're not moved off of the voter rules. The Supreme Court, in a case called Husted, has made it possible for secretaries of state to prune voter rolls if people are inactive voters, something that's ridiculous, right? You fail to vote in one or two elections, you don't send a postcard back to the secretary of state, suddenly you're not an active voter. I think Biden and the White House can do a lot to educate voters about what they need to do to ensure that they're on the rolls, what they can do to make sure that they have the right to vote, including how you cast a provisional ballot. So I'm looking forward to a lot of good coming out of this White House and the voting rights community. And I would add to that, it's up to the voters to vote for members of Congress who will vote for these laws and who will vote to carve out, at the very least, something from the filibuster rule to allow us to protect minorities to vote instead of minorities in Congress from preventing it. So everybody get on that. Write to your Congress people, write to your senators. You know what, Joyce? I was out and about and I got a compliment on my outfit and I was actually wearing beta brand yoga dress pants. Have you heard about them? I have. You know, I have a pair too, Kim. And let me tell you what I like best about them. Uh, like you, I spend a lot of my time sitting in an uncomfortable chair in front of a TV camera. And since my chair is now in my home studio in our basement, when I get up from that chair and I'm feeling sort of 
stiff. Um, I keep a yoga mat right next to my studio area. And with the beta brand pants, I don't even have to change. I just take my suit jacket off and pop straight into down dog. And they are so comfortable, but you can turn around and wear them out to dinner. I am in love with them. Barb, what about you? I'm sorry. That's just a great visual image. Was that too much information? uh, Swing hits on uh, MSNBC. You're dropping to the floor in in your beta brand. A couple of chaturangas. I'm good to go. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's good. Well, with beta brand, you never have to sacrifice style for comfort. In 2022, you deserve both. And Beta Brand has the comfortable pants you need without sacrificing style, polish, or personality. Beta Brand's dress pant yoga pants are designed with the fit and flexibility of yoga pants, but they look like polished dress pants. They're soft, comfortable, perfectly stretchy, and they stay wrinkle-free. You can choose from dozens of colors, patterns, cuts, and styles like boot cut, joggers, cropped, skinny, and more. And they have fun limited time prints, but they sell out fast, so don't wait. I, uh, Jill, actually ordered the ones with the seven pockets. (laughs) Those are the best. They have lots and lots of pockets. I'm not surprised that you ordered the seven pockets. I only ordered it with four pockets, and I totally love it. And I went to a uh, breathing class, meditation class, and my instructor has now ordered two pairs because that's what I was wearing, and I had total flexibility while looking well-dressed. Women love their dress pants, yoga pants, because they fit so well. Whether you're sitting at a desk for eight hours, bending and moving all day, or running all over town, no digging, pulling, or squeezing. They move with you, so you look good and feel great all day. And if this sounds good, here's more to get excited about. Pockets and machine washable. Yoga denim. That's right. Looks like denim. Feels like heavenly comfort. That's the pair I got. Right now, get 30% off your Beta Brand order when you go to betabrand.com slash sisters. That's B-E-T-A brand.com slash sisters for 30% off your order for a limited time. Make sure to use our special link because it supports our show. Find out why women are buying five different pairs of these pants. Go to betabrand.com slash sisters today for 30% off or look for the link in our show notes. There was lots of news this week related to the ongoing congressional investigation into the January 6th insurrection. And the biggest news came from the U.S. Supreme Court. So let's start there with the law. Jill, tell us about this ruling by the court that Trump's White House papers need to be turned over to the January 6th committee. What does it mean for for Trump and what does it mean for others claiming executive privilege as a way to refuse to cooperate with the committee? So it was a one paragraph decision, but there was also a um, statement by Justice Kavanaugh that expanded a little bit on it. Basically, the court said, we're not taking this case because there's no case to be taken and the documents have to be turned over, Um, that Trump's claims would have failed even if he were the incumbent. It's not because he was the former president, it's just because the claim here of executive privilege had no merit whatsoever. And they relied, of course, on the case that I was involved in, which is U.S. v. Nixon, the Watergate case, which made it clear to me that this was a loser for Donald Trump. And Kavanaugh just sort of repeated, yes, 
he agrees with the decision that the papers have to be turned over, but wanted to make clear that it was dicta, what we lawyers call dicta, sort of irrelevant to the decision, any of the comments about whether a former president could or could not invoke any claims. And so he respectfully disagreed uh, on that point. And other than that, he agreed that the documents had to be turned over. So it's a simple thing. And what does it mean for um, other participants in January 6th? It means that they, too, are going to have to turn over documents and that they, too, are going to have to testify that there is no claim of executive privilege because they were talking to the former president about committing a crime, about insurrection, about overthrowing our government, about throwing out the legitimate, fair results of our election. So this is really bad news for Donald Trump and all of the insurrectionists, all of the people who were at the Willard Hotel, all of the people who funded this, et cetera, et cetera. And it's great for the January 6th committee and for the prosecutors who are looking at the crimes that were involved in the events leading up to, and I'm not limiting that to the events of January 6th. I'm talking about uh, the Rassenberger call and what it means to that. So I think there's a lot of good news for those who are hoping for accountability. Did you guys see that they're already um, starting to get these documents? It's, it's only been like a couple yeah. of days. There's some executive yeah. order about seizing voting machines. I think there's going to be some interesting stuff yes. in there. Yes, and on and that, it refers on that- to a her in that, and so the speculation is that the drafter, because it doesn't, it's an unsigned document, but the. Speculation now is that it was Sidney Powell who drafted that, making herself the person who would be in charge as a special prosecutor. Well, I want to I dig more into this and talk about the documents themselves that are involved in this, these documents that are at the uh, National Archives. Joyce, what is in, what are these documents? What's in them? Why does the committee need them? And one thing that I recall is how uh, Chairman Benny Thompson has said that the committee's work is moving into a more public phase. So does that mean that the public will see these documents outside of the ones that uh, Jill and Barb were talking about that uh, were leaked to the press? So all good questions. Um, First thing first, we don't know exactly what's in these documents, but one thing that's for certain is that Trump really didn't want the committee to see them. And, you know, as a prosecutor, I've often found that efforts to conceal information uh, by a defendant or a target, if you could find what they were trying to conceal, it would lead you straight to the mother load. You don't have to be a prosecutor to know that, right? You know that if you've ever had a kid conceal a report card or a zillion other everyday (laughs) sort of events. The fact that Trump was trying to keep these documents away from the committee, I think, um, tells you that the January 6th committee is headed the right way. As they do head into hearings, I suspect that we'll learn the most important details from these documents. But, oh my, some of those details are already starting to leak out. So um, the committee had identified categories of documents in its request. And what we know so far is that generally this is a tranche with more than 700 pages of records detailing what was going on in the White House in this time period that the committee is investigating. The records include activity logs, schedules, speech notes, and three pages of handwritten notes from then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. 
all stuff that's critical if the committee is going to get a fulsome picture of what was going on. And one of the core jobs the committee has is to get to the truth of what happened so it can decide if there's new legislation it needs to put in place to protect our government. Um, also included in these documents, other top officials' records, uh, stuff from then-press secretary Kaylee McEnany. You'll recall that she told us on her first day at the podium that she would never lie to us, and then she proceeded to uh, every day and repeatedly. We'll learn more about her activity in that time period. There are documents from then-Deputy White House Counsel Patrick Philbin. That may be very interesting to see what's going on there. No attorney-client privilege between White House Counsel and the President because the White House Counsel represents the presidency, not the current incumbent of that office. And, of course, there may well be lists showing calls to then-President Trump and to Vice President Pence. These documents will be a, a treasure trove for the committee. And one of the documents has already been identified by Betsy Swan through this great reporting she's done at Politico. She's come up with a draft executive order that's included in the documents. The order would have had Trump declare that the election was tainted on the basis of information that we now know was rejected by every court that considered it. Trump would have seized election machines, which would have likely been a precursor to a recount declaring him the victor in the election. The order would have clearly violated the Posse Comitatus Act by having the military intervene in elections. And you will recall that Trump had already put people who were loyal to him in place at DOD. So some of these pieces may be starting to make sense. I don't want to get too far into conjecture, but this document appears to be very revealing. It's likely that some word of, of this plan, this draft executive order, is what animated the January 3rd column in the Washington Post that was written by all of the, the 10 living former secretaries of defense saying that the military could not be used to influence the outcome of an election. And as Jill referenced, it seems that Trump was um, getting ready to appoint Sidney Powell. Y'all will remember her, right? Release the Kraken. Um, that he the was Kraken. going to appoint her <laughs> as special counsel to investigate the 2020 election because this executive order is sort of sloppy in its drafting. And when it gets down to the special counsel portion, it references giving all the resources that, quote, she will need to the special counsel. So, just this one document from these 700 pages is pretty spectacular. The implications are serious. Um, but I feel the need to reiterate here, and I'll be interested to see what y'all think. It's great that the January 6th committee is looking at all of this and bringing it to light. The question that I have is, hey, Merrick Garland, uh, where are you on this stuff? Because DOJ should be looking at it, too. He said he was working. He said, be patient, Joyce. Didn't I you take him? him at face value. I just want to make sure that he's on it. Yeah, I, I think at this point we need some evidence, not just, I, I, you know, we've all been saying on this show, well, it's right for the Department of Justice to act in silence because we have to protect grand jury secrecy. And at this point, it's getting beyond that. And I think, um, and I want to expand on something you said, Joyce, because it's often the cover-up that's worse than the underlying crime. In this case, I'm not sure that the crime wasn't so awful that the cover-up wouldn't be worse, but it is a separate crime. Notes, handwritten notes are very important. The Haldeman was the chief of staff in the Nixon era. His handwritten notes were dynamite and really made a difference in 
things like the 18 and a half minute gap. Call logs led us to be able to subpoena the right witnesses. And, you know, we're back also to Donald Trump saying, this is a witch hunt. And when you mentioned Kraken and I think of the witch hunt, I ha- I'm debating what pin do I wear tonight on Lawrence? Do I wear a Kraken or do I wear a witch? I don't know. We'll have to fans weigh in on what I should wear. So while while Jill ponders that, I'm going to turn to Barb uh, and, and talk about the fact that the the committee is seeking information from a lot of people inside Trump's inner circle, including the Kraken lawyers, uh, Ivanka, Rudy Giuliani. They've either subpoenaed or requested voluntary cooperation from Barb. What does that tell you? What information will are are these requests? Seeking. Well, it, it, I would put them in two different categories. I think Ivanka Trump is in one category, and I think all these lawyers are in a different one. For Ivanka Trump, um, you know, what, what this says to me is they've heard from other witnesses now, you know, and this is how you investigate a case. You talk to one group of witnesses, you learn some things, you learn about other people, what other people were doing that day. And one of the things that has been reported that the committee has learned is that on January 6th, during that time that the Capitol was under attack, Ivanka Trump went in to see her father multiple times to say, you got to do something. This is horrible. People are going to die in there. You've got to do something. And so they want to know what was going on there, I think, because I think it can be very insightful into what he said, what he did, what he was doing, and why he didn't take action. Um, And, you know, most of us don't have um, a duty of to act. Our, our omissions cannot be criminal conduct. Our omissions uh, cannot be a breach of our duties. But when it comes to a president and someone who does have power to do something, he had the power to um, in, invoke the National Guard and get them to get in there. And why did he delay so long? And I think that's really important. And again, in, in the Congress's lawmaking function, is it necessary to have some other provisions in place so when there is a dire crisis like this and the president fails to act, somebody else has the ability to do something? So that, I think, is really important. And I, I think that is probably what they're looking at with her. She was also a participant in that rally at the Ellipse on January 6th, and so she may be privy to information about the strategy and the plan and whether there was a goal to incite this group to uh, attack the Capitol. The lawyers, I think, is very different. Giuliani and Sidney Powell and the Kraken crew, um, as you referred to them, you know, this group um, brought a, a very aggressive nationwide strategy to file lawsuits all over the country to, I think, lend credence to the theory that there was fraud in the election. And none of these cases went anywhere. More than 60 cases were dismissed by judges. In some jurisdictions, including here in Michigan, um, Judge Linda Parker in the Eastern District of Michigan, bam, sanctioned uh, these lawyers for these frivolous, ridiculous lawsuits. And I was very proud of her uh, to see her do that. And there have been sanctions in other jurisdictions as well. They filed these baseless affidavits saying that there was fraud and it was you know, completely statements that were true and completely irrelevant. Like I saw someone with a plastic bag going into the polling place. Okay. True. Um, but not probative of fraud. Um, and, and so what was that strategy all about? You know, was this a, um, a nationwide strategy that was part of, you know, there's also Bernard Carrick, Kim, um, has produced some information. He's claimed privilege on others, but that there was this nationwide strategic communications plan. Um, what was in that? Was the John Eastman memo part of all of that? And was this legal challenge 
all part of that communication strategy to convince people like, wow, there must be some merit to this fraud. They're filing lawsuits about it. Um, And, you know, really all they needed was to create enough, you know, it all goes back to Trump. Remember like when um, he was um, asking the president of Ukraine um, to make an announcement about an investigation into Hunter and Joe Biden. It was, you don't have to really do an investigation. I just want to say there's an investigation because then I can go with that and I, I can use it. A favor. So, yeah. And then yeah. the same thing that he said to the Justice Department officials. Remember that when they're pushing back and they're saying that there's no fraud. We don't want to do a fraud investigation. He said, just say there was fraud and leave the rest to me and Republicans in Congress. This is the playbook. You, know, you just say what you hope is true. Rudy Giuliani, let's just say we won. Uh, and so I think that is part of the strategy is finding out um, how this these legal lawsuits played into this, over, it, whether there was an overall strategy uh, to promote this propaganda and disinformation about voter fraud so that Trump could cling to power. You know, it's interesting, Barb, because what I have to ask after listening to you, you've laid out a really great conspiracy argument in some ways. I know that's not what the committee's looking at. But you've also laid some possible paths where it could lead straight up to the president. How far along do you think people are to connecting that up? Boy, it's hard to know, isn't it, Joyce? I mean, I think I I liked a lot of what Merrick Garland had to say that day. I think the one thing he could have said that would have been better in my mind, you know, when he did ask for patience and we're doing this methodical work and we're building a case. And then he did come up with a seditious conspiracy case that I thought was useful. But again, it only pertains to these oath keepers. Um, the one thing I would like to have him to have said is we are looking at the January 6th attack as not the only part of, uh, of this crime. Uh, we're looking at things that occurred before, during, and after January 6th to obstruct the peaceful transfer of power. And um, I hope that that's what they're looking at and that he chose his words very cautiously so as not to overpromise or even to besmirch people for whom they are not yet ready to charge. But um, it's it's impossible to know how far along they have gotten. But um, it's been a year, and I think based on Merrick Garland's comments, they have focused mostly on what I'll refer to as the low-hanging fruit, people who committed misdemeanors, who are willing to take easy pleas, and are now in the position where they can get information from those people to move a little further up the chain. And um, and, and, and we'll see. I'm just hopeful that it isn't just about January 6th, because I think January 6th was more of a um, uh, symptom than the cause. It was um, one part of a months-long conspiracy to disrupt the peaceful transition of presidential power. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to believe that Trump's lawyers acted and he didn't know anything about it. There is some interesting evidence out there, though, and I think we should caution our listeners to be careful observers of the evidence, because, for instance, in the seditious conspiracy case, um, there is some suggestion that the leader of this group, that he decided it was time for them to act because they didn't think that Trump was going to. So there's a little bit that cuts against conspiracy, and of course, you have to prove that every defendant in a conspiracy case entered into an agreement. I think this piece with the lawyers and what we'll see in these documents may be a lot more um, promising for going all the way to Trump than the seditious conspiracy piece. But I'm willing to be wrong. Yeah. And I've heard you say this, Joyce, which I think is really insightful. Um, The January 6th attack was a conspiracy within a conspiracy. So there was that little piece of it, but it's all part of something bigger. And I I think that they, they at least have a duty to look at that. 
Sheila, I know you've been um, studying breathing with breathing classes. Have you tried using Headspace for meditation as well? I have, and it is a wonderful thing. It is a great supplement to any kind of meditation practice or breathing practice that you have. It offers so many wonderful things. Kim, I know with everybody being stressed, it's probably something that you've tried too, right? It really has. And it has been so helpful. One thing I like about it is that it's not a huge time commitment. If you have some time, you can spend it with it. But even if you have only a couple of minutes, you can do a a meditation just to try to um, ease some tension that you're feeling or or just to set your intentions for the day uh, to start fresh. It's really great. And if your mind has been sprinting for years on end, leaving trails of stress, anxiety, and fatigue that's eroding your mental health. If you're nodding along yes when I say that, then it's time to adopt small daily practices that will have a huge impact on your long-term happiness and well-being. And it's easy to learn with Headspace. You know, we all say fine when we don't mean it. Fine isn't really an emotion, is it? How many times have you told yourself you're fine when all you've really felt is anger or sadness or nerves? Headspace is scientifically proven to help you manage your feelings and your mental health. In fact, a recent study proved in just two weeks, Headspace can reduce your stress by 14%. Whether you want to relieve stress and anxiety, sleep better, or improve your focus, Headspace is your everyday dose of mindfulness for real life. Let's give it a try now. So sitting comfortably, just taking a big deep breath in through the nose and out through the mouth. As you breathe in, noticing how the body expands. And as you breathe out, just watching the body soften as you gently close the eyes. And rather than the mind leading the breath, allow the breath to lead the mind. Notice the sensation of the breath. Notice where you feel it in the body. If you need to, you can just gently place your hand on the stomach. And just following that rising and falling sensation. Nothing else to do, allowing thoughts to come and go. And then when you're ready, just gently opening the eyes again. I feel better already. How about you? I really, really do. However you're feeling, try Headspace at headspace.com sisters and get one month free of their entire mindfulness library. This is the best Headspace offer available. So go to headspace.com sisters today. That's headspace.com sisters or look for the link in our show notes. More bad news for the former president. We got news this week about two very different state investigations into his misconduct. First in Atlanta, where Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis is investigating Trump's efforts to interfere in the outcome of the 2020 election uh, in Georgia. You'll recall he tried to get Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to find him the 11,780 votes it would have taken to let him win the state by just one vote. 
very, very transparent effort to interfere with the election. Um, Jill, what news do we have from D.A. Willis's shop? Well, we have some very important news because she has asked to have a special grand jury impaneled. That means that it's a grand jury that would focus solely on the investigation of that phone call and activities relating to overturning the vote in Georgia, uh, where Donald Trump lost by just under 11,780 votes and was asking, just like we were talking about in the last segment, just find me the vote. Just say you're investigating it. It doesn't matter. Just say it. Uh, Same sort of thing. And so now you have um, this request, which hopefully will be granted, and probably there's no reason why it wouldn't be granted. Um, And a grand jury that can sit for up to a year can investigate and call in witnesses and not have to be diverted by normal routine U.S. attorney, uh, I'm sorry, DA office cases. And you would also have a judge on hand because this would include appointing a judge to supervise this so that when witnesses, for example, say, I'm not coming in in response to the subpoena, they could be held immediately accountable by having a judge ready and able to take action on it. This could move a criminal case for violating a lot of laws in in Georgia um, to the fore and could lead to an indictment of the president, former president, Donald Trump, and his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, who was on that particular phone call. But there were other phone calls. Um, Lindsey Graham, for one, made a phone call that he then denied. But um, when he denied it, that was what led the secretary of state to record the next phone call because he didn't want to get made a fool of a second time by having someone deny that they had called when they had. So I think it's all very good news. Barb, what do you make of the fact that this case, I mean, this matter of national significance is falling on the shoulders of a district attorney in Georgia? Does that make sense to you? Yes and no. Um, You know, you would hope that this is all part of something that DOJ is looking at as well. If there is this larger conspiracy that spanned all of these swing states, you know, that were close in play, like Michigan, Wisconsin, Georgia, Pennsylvania, and some others, you would hope that DOJ is looking at it as well. But there's, you know, this concept called the dual sovereignty doctrine that says that states and the federal government are their own sovereign. And so one cannot stop the other from investigating a case. And typically, um, out of deference to states, the feds will often go second um, and defer to states to prosecute crimes that occurred within their own jurisdictions. Um, And each will have its own statute. So for a federal crime, you'd have to charge a federal offense. You know, there's conspiracy to defraud the United States, for example, would be a federal offense. Um, The DA in Georgia is only permitted to uh, charge violations of the laws of Georgia. So she would have to be looking at, at that. But she's not precluded from doing it. And in many ways, I think she has the most publicly available uh, and well-known case because of that recording about finding the 11,000 votes. Um, There may be other illegal activity that occurred in other places, but this one was so blatant because of that recording. Now, the recording alone does not do it. I know people say, we all heard the recording. He said 11,000 votes. It's over. Case closed, right? 
And, you know, what matters, of course, is knowledge and intent. I imagine a defense would be something along the lines of, I genuinely believed I had won by more than 11,000 votes. And so I needed you to uh, correctly count those votes and find those correct votes for me so that you could properly declare me the winner. I think that would be the defense. And so I think what's important is looking at other conversations. We know that Mark Meadows also talked to Brad uh, Raffensperger on other occasions. Uh, what else was going on? It, was this one of those just say, you know, say there's an investigation kind of deals? So I think there is more to investigate than just this recording. But the recording is really powerful evidence. And so I think that if any of us were Fannie Willis, we would feel obligated uh, on behalf of the citizens of our uh, district who voted us into office to follow this up. It does not preclude the federal government from also charging this later, uh, either separately or as part of a larger conspiracy. Oh, that's interesting. I had wondered if a federal prosecution wouldn't be barred by the petite policy, um, which keeps the federal government from prosecuting the same crime. But you make a really interesting point that it's different statutes and could be different violations. And, you know, something else that I've seen floated is that the feds can't prosecute because the U.S. attorney in Atlanta was fired as part of this whole mess. There's the suggestion that he was forced out when he wouldn't prosecute fraud. But of course, DOJ folks like Barb and I know that that sort of situation comes up frequently, or not frequently, but it's not unheard of. And the department simply handles it by having, for instance, they would have the, the new U.S. attorney in Atlanta, who I think has just had his vote out of committee um, in the Senate, but he would recuse and a U.S. attorney from another district would come in to handle that matter. And that typically is enough to ameliorate the appearance of impropriety. It's going to be tough in this case because of its national reach. But yet again, that's a sort of a rationale for the feds to be involved um, in the first place. We should tell place. people what the petite policy is, Joyce. You're, you're right about that. Yeah, all go that. ahead. Oh, so the petite policy is a policy, so it's not a law. It is a policy that says that if someone has been successfully prosecuted by a state, ordinarily the federal government should stand down unless there is some substantial federal interest that has not been vindicated. To me, the classic example is always the Rodney King beating case where um, in, in state court, the police officers who beat him were acquitted and the feds said uh, there are federal rights that have not been vindicated, substantial federal interest, and they went in and filed criminal charges uh, in federal court. Um, and so that happens from time to time. You've seen it in some of these police brutality cases. Um, and, uh, certainly in this, in this case, I think that you could make the argument, you know, it would depend on what happens in the Georgia case, but if certainly if it's part of a larger conspiracy, um, there would be different statutes. And so it would be possible. They would certainly look at that policy and think about it. But as long as there is some substantial federal interest that has not yet been vindicated, it would not preclude federal charges. So deep dive into DOJ internal policy, which I think looms large here. But now we're going to shift out of Georgia to New York, where the other news came from this week. Late night filing from New York Attorney General Tish James in a civil case where she's trying to take the depositions of Trump, Ivanka and Don Jr. Kim, talk with us about what the stakes are in this case and, and whether or not Tish James will be successful in getting the depositions. And I just have to say, Thank God for all of the strong, smart black women who have been elected to prosecutorial offices because they are carrying the weight of this democracy on their shoulders. Yes. Yeah, so this is uh, just the latest information in a case that we've talked about here before that Attorney General Tish James is 
uh, bringing. It's an investigation into the financial dealings of the Trump organization. Specifically, uh, she is investigating uh, allegations that the organization uh, either inflated or deflated their property values uh, in a way that would have benefited them financially. When it came to lenders, they would inflate uh, the property values uh, and do things like, you know, suddenly when when uh, the former president would talk about his uh, 11,000 square foot uh, apartment in Trump Tower, it would become somehow 30,000 square feet when he wanted to use that as collateral for a loan. But, you know, when certain valuations were being looked at by the IRS, uh, they would be deflated so that he could pay less money in taxes. Both things, very illegal, if that's what they did. And so uh, the attorney general of New York wants to get the depositions uh, from, among other people, Donald Trump himself, Donald Trump Jr., and Ivanka Trump, who were all high-ranking officials in the Trump organization. If this sort of business was going on, certainly they would know about it. Um, they were seeking to quash this uh, these depositions, and I don't think that they will be successful in doing that. By the way, again, quash is one of my favorite words in the quash legal Quash is a good word. Jargon. It is a good word. It just means they want to, you know, they want to block this deposition from happening, but I like saying quash better. Um, so Attorney General James uh, is seeking these documents because not only does she know that uh, the Trumps were obviously involved um, if this actually was happening, but she also has almost a million documents obtained from the Trump organization based on interviews with other employees and other documents that she's gotten from the organization itself. So she appears to be building a very serious case, um, which could have some serious implications here. I don't think that there is any basis for the Trumps to try to block these depositions. We've seen them lose uh, on that case before. So I think that there is something um, we can learn a lot from this investigation. So Jill, as Kim points out, this is a civil case, not a criminal one. No one's going to prison at the end of this case. But what kind of penalties could the Trumps or the organization be looking at, especially considering New York's blue sky laws? And I would add to that, uh, New York's little RICO law, too. Um, the damages could run into the millions. There could be restitution ordered. There could be a termination of their certificate for doing business. Uh, as previously mentioned, the foundation, the Trump Foundation, was put out of business for a consistent pattern of fraud in its dealings. And that's what she, that is Letitia James, is suggesting is that there is a pattern of fraud that has governed the operations of the Trump organization. And so that could lead to not just putting them out of business and bankrupting them. Um, and just that's, I think, the biggest outcome from that point. They could also be forced, obviously, to come in and testify. And as Eric Trump has already done, claim the Fifth Amendment, which I would assume even Trump loyal followers would find at least disturbing, if not revolting and disabling for him to ever run again, is that he's claiming the Fifth Amendment because he may have committed a crime and he won't testify to provide that information. So I think all of that is true, plus all the evidence that she is gathering can be turned over for a criminal case. 
So that's why there is a Fifth Amendment privilege for for claiming, and I, I don't want to tell you something because it could be used against me in a criminal case, but I still think politically claiming the Fifth Amendment, no matter what a judge says in a trial about claiming the Fifth Amendment doesn't mean you're, yeah, it does to most people. And so as a political matter, I think it would be very bad. So putting them out of business, costing them millions of dollars, bankrupting them, and making them claim the Fifth Amendment. Those are some of the consequences of this particular case. Wow, it case. sounds terrible, and it couldn't happen to a, a more worthy group of people. But um, since you mentioned the possibility that there is a criminal case lurking here, and we all know that there is, right? The Manhattan DA notoriously has an open criminal investigation. Tish James is reportedly working with him on that. And Barb, Trump has suggested that James is out to get him and that the civil case is really just a proxy for that Manhattan DA's criminal case. Does he have a good point here? Is James doing anything wrong? Um, You know, nothing that is going to negate his guilt if it is proven or his liability in a civil case. You know, just because the uh, prosecuting authority or the, the attorney general says mean things about you doesn't negate your guilt. And so if Donald Trump um, has engaged in either civil fraud or criminal fraud, he will be held accountable regardless of her, her comments. But um, I, do, I, I do take issue with the way she has portrayed this case. I think she's used it as a campaign um, a point. You know, for a while she was running for governor. Uh, she withdrew from that and is now seeking re-election as attorney general. But, you know, she said things like, I will stop this illegitimate president. And, um, you know, she has made it appear to be that he is in her crosshairs, that he he is, uh, you know, her target. And I think, regardless of, you know, the merits of any case, it does invite the kind of claims that he makes, that this is all just a witch hunt. It's all partisan politics. See, she's a Democrat running for office, and she's using me uh, as, uh, you know, a way to whip up a frenzy of support and voters and money and all those kinds of things. And I think that really diminishes the office. You know, Joyce, you and I come from this world, and and Jill, um, of the federal government, federal prosecutors, where you can't say a word about politics ever. And it, it just sounds so foreign to my ear to hear anyone who's an attorney general making these kinds of statements. Um, so I think mostly it really harms her in uh, the public and it harms public confidence in her impartiality and her independence. Now, you know, the, the evidence is going to speak for itself. It's going, it's ultimately going to be a judge or a jury that decides any guilt or liability here, not her. But uh, I still think it's a bad look. Um, and there is a slight, and I think only very, very slight, possibility that it could actually harm a case if there were to be a jury uh, trial in either of the civil or criminal cases. There is this argument that uh, public statements by uh, a government attorney can taint the jury pool by creeping you know, into, the, into their psyche this predisposition of guilt or wrongdoing. Um, usually the voir dire process is sufficient to weed out any people who may have heard those comments or been swayed by them. But at least it's an argument that makes it a little less clean for appeal. So much easier to be a federal prosecutor where you (laughs) never have to run for re-election, right? I mean, our system puts sort of crazy burdens on state prosecutors and state judges who run for election. But that said, you know, Kim, you've heard Barb's opinion that this is— Can I just weigh in on that a little bit? Because aside from being a federal prosecutor, I also was uh, deputy attorney general— to an elected attorney general in the state of Illinois. And so I know the political pressures and what happens when you are called upon to make public statements. And I would say um, 
that her comments have been carefully enough crafted that there is no real harm in what she has said, that it isn't going to ever be grounds for an appellate court saying, yes, we have to throw this out because she wasn't fair. I, I think that it will withstand all scrutiny and that it's, it's okay. Yes, as federal prosecutors, we would never get into this, and that does make it easier. But these are things that happen when you're running for office, and I don't think there's any evidence that she's doing this for political reasons. The evidence has fallen like a ton of bricks into the state of New York, and how could she ignore using the laws that empower her to do this investigation. How could she ignore that? She would have to do it. That doesn't make it a witch hunt. You know, that's a really good point. And there's so much in New York. I mean, this is just like rich pickings for a, a prosecutor with all of this conduct. I mean, Kim, what's your assessment? Is is justice finally coming for Trump? Yeah, I think it depends on what your definition of justice is. But I think... Um, I do think that the attorney general, political issues aside, um, has shown herself to at least be a thorough investigator. And I do think that this investigation will continue to yield um, a lot of enlightening and important information about what exactly happened at the Trump organization, the same way that her investigation into the former governor uh, of New York uh, was very thorough and, and may not have ended up in in as many criminal charges as some people may have wanted, but certainly um, it certainly cost him his job and it certainly brought a lot of transparency to what was going on um, that didn't before. I think that at the very least will also happen here. You know, that's a fascinating comparison because it drives home really something we've been talking about throughout this entire episode, which is how one of the fundamental purposes of our justice system is to get to the truth. When bad things happen in government, one of the best ways to fix it is to know the truth. That's what you did in Watergate, Jill, that I think really permitted the country to restore itself. And here we're talking about, you know, committed public servants trying to do the same thing, to reveal the truth in the face of people who are persistently trying to keep the truth from coming to light. Barb, I know how much you love to cook. Um, so tell me something that you've made recently. <laughs> yeah, I bet so you it has hard. something to do. <laughs> I uh, bet you it has something to do with HelloFresh. I have, Kim, thank you very much. I recently made a delicious salmon with a mustard soy sauce. It Ooh. was easy. It was delicious. It was healthy. Um, and that's because I used HelloFresh. You know, the idea of actually making that on my own is really daunting to me. You got to go buy mm. all the stuff. And, you know, I have a, a good friend, Mojo, who's a great cook. And she'll say things like, well, just grab the oregano out of your pantry. You know, like, as we would say in the law, assumes facts, <laughs> not in evidence. Like, I don't have this stuff lying around. <laughs> but with HelloFresh, you get every ingredient measured out that you need for the recipe. You can put it together in 30 minutes. And it's really, it's delicious. It's it's healthy. It's tasty. Um, and it's easy. So I really like it. How about about you, Jill? You still using HelloFresh? Oh, I love it. I've upped my order to three times a week now because it really puts food on the table that looks and tastes delicious. This week, I've had I've cooked two of the meals that I already have. Uh, one was a chicken, and I may be saying this wrong in terms of pronunciation, zahatar spiced. Anybody know how to say that right? Anyway, 
The new year is a great time to focus on what's most important to your life, like nutrition, finances, and your health. And HelloFresh is a delicious meal kit here to help with endless options that make cooking at home simple and enjoyable. I think my husband enjoys it as much as I do, and I know I love being able to tell him, honey, you don't have to plan what you're going to cook for dinner. Just go make HelloFresh. It makes it so easy for him to take over for me when I'm busy. HelloFresh offers 50 menu and market items to choose from every week, including veggie, calorie smart, family friendly, and gourmet options, providing plenty of variety. Recipes like hibachi sweet soy bavette steak and shrimp bring restaurant-quality meals right to your kitchen, while their white cheddar Wonder Burgers make it easier than ever to skip the takeout. And don't forget dessert. You can satisfy your sweet tooth with seasonal limited-time goodies like Dunkaroos cookie dough or vanilla delight cheesecake. We love that you can easily customize your order on the app within minutes with fresh, high-quality ingredients that go from the farm to your kitchen in less than a week all delivered right to your door. So I'm a little jealous, Joyce, that your husband is doing the cooking. Mine is doing the enjoying eating. So he does enjoy (laughs) it as much as I do. So don't wait to get started. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Sisters16 and use code Sisters16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. That's HelloFresh.com slash sisters 16 and use code sisters 16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts or get the link to america's number one meal kit in our show notes And now it's our favorite part of the show where we answer listener questions. We love to hear from our listeners. In fact, listeners, if you have any words that you uh, know are mispronounced, <laughs> please send them our way because we want to we hear about those too. Um, but if you have a question for us, you can email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, please keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week where we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. Our first question comes to us from Nicole, who says, I was wondering if you could explain what an Allen charge is in further detail. And Jill, let me ask you to explain that if you would. I will. The Allen charge is what a judge will tell the jury when they come back and say, we're deadlocked. Um, And it's been very carefully crafted over the years so that it doesn't force anyone to give up a legitimately held uh, position but will say, you have the evidence and no other jury is going to be able to discern any better than you, so please go back and try to listen to the other points of view and see if you can't come to an agreement. So it's basically a way of helping a jury to break a deadlock. And um, that has happened in many recent cases where there has been a deadlock. All right, thank you. Our next question comes from Suzanne in Cincinnati, Ohio. Suzanne writes, in light of Clarence Thomas, I would like to know more about the process by which Supreme Court justices recuse themselves, how often it happens, and who, if anyone, ensures that recusals happen. In other words, who's the boss of them? Joyce, who's the boss of the Supreme Court justices? You know, it's such a good question. Every lawyer in every state in the United States is liable to follow that state's ethics code. And the same is true for state judges and for federal district court judges and for federal judges on the courts of appeals. But the buck stops there. And there is no code of ethics that binds Supreme Court justices. 
Now, there's a little bit of rationale for that, and part of the rationale is that Congress, as a separate branch, shouldn't lay down rules that would cabin the behavior of Supreme Court justices, because that would cause a little bit of a separation of powers consequence. But for instance, over the years, we've seen things like Justice Scalia had sort of notoriously accepted this hunting trip where he tragically died from folks who, you know, possibly could have had some litigation impacts on the court. And so those sorts of questions are really troublesome. Here's what Supreme Court justices are supposed to do, even though they're not obligated to recuse by a specific set of rules. They're supposed to vigorously protect the appearance uh, of or sort of protect the court from even the appearance of impropriety. Not just actual conflicts of interest, but even the appearance of one is supposed to be enough to prevent a justice, just like any judge or lawyer, from participating in a matter. But the reality is there are growing concerns. Um, and, and then the last thing that I'll say is, you know, Ginny Thomas is Justice Thomas's wife. She is not the judge. And I think this notion that we want spouses to be bound by their spouse's position is a little bit troubling, right? It would mean that no spouse of a judge could have sort of a a private life, but there does have to be some balance. And here where there's this suggestion um, of impropriety, the answer is for the judge to not participate in the case where his spouse might have some level of involvement. We need to see, I think, a self-imposition of rules on the part of the judiciary. Yeah, you know, this was the subject of Chief Justice Roberts' uh, end-of-the-year kind of annual report that he does about these calls for um, oversight from other branches of government into judicial misconduct, all, which also includes sexual harassment in judges' chambers, which is, I think, an unaddressed problem. Um, and he said, you, you know, we don't, we don't need rules from Congress that would just, you know, affect our independence, so we'll just police ourselves. I'm not sure I buy that. Yeah, but problematic. We'll, uh, We'll see how that goes. All right. And our last question comes to us from Marsha in Tennessee. Marsha writes, I noticed that the Fifth Amendment says that no person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. Good job, Marsha, reading the fine print in the Fifth Amendment. (laughs) The January 6th committee is asking Trump associates like Roger Stone and others to testify, and they say they will take the Fifth. How can they do that since this is not a criminal case but a congressional investigation? Kim, what gives there? Marsha's right. Yes, that is the language of the Fifth Amendment. Um, I'm going to oversimplify this a bit, but I think it'll help uh, people understand what that actually means. So when you think about criminal case uh, in the language, think about where that testimony will be used as opposed to where that testimony is actually given. Because testimony that is given in all sorts of Uh, situations where a person is under oath, whether it's in a congressional testimony, civil case, or otherwise, can be used in a criminal case. Think about Miranda warnings. So when a police officer, when they're questioning someone, has to say, anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. That's not actually taking place in a courtroom. That's taking place as an interrogation outside of a courtroom. But that evidence can be brought in. And so it's not just within that courtroom during a trial that a person has that Fifth Amendment protection. It's in any testimony that they give that can be used in a courtroom in a criminal trial uh, against them. Thanks for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkins Store, Joyce Vance, Jill Weinbanks, and me, Barb McQuaid. 
You can send your questions to us by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. Go to politicon.com slash merch to buy some of our fun swag. This week's sponsors are Beta Brand, Headspace, and HelloFresh. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them because they really help to make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag sistersinlaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag sistersinlaw. Yes, although I am very, very sad about the passing of Meatloaf. I would do anything for y'all right now, but when it comes to singing, I won't do that. You won't sing even a little bit, a little uh, Paradise by the Dashboard Lights. What are the other stuff? That song is hard to sing. That song is hard to sing. I certainly wouldn't want to sing that. My my favorite favorite meatloaf song. It is such a loss. My favorite song is actually Heaven Can Wait, which is this pretty little ballad. Um, Oh, maybe you'll sing that one. That is really beautiful. How does it go? I don't know this one. I would do anything for (laughs) y'all. I won't do that. (laughs) <laughs> I won't do that right. Kim when is your next album coming out next <laughs> it's really funny like I, I when I was in college I was in a little band um, what wait wait what a band yeah. do tell are there YouTube I was in videos? a band when no we'd never shot a video but we gigged around Detroit um, maybe I saw you maybe what was the name of your band um, what was the name of your band I don't know if we even had a name. We would just like no. Did you I was play a vocalist? It was, it was two. It was a a male and female lead. It was like you know, it was like Black Fleetwood Mac. But we did covers. Um, and I I was in a couple of groups when I was in college. Anyway, so my thought was either I get discovered and become a singer and get a record contract, or I go to law school. So the fact that I'm sitting here with y'all tells you how that went. Well, you know, there's always hope, Kim. Maybe if you sing a few bars, maybe you'll get discovered right now by one of our listeners. Come on, Kim, do it. I like the career that I have. It all worked out. We're happy to have you. We don't want to lose our sister to the music industry. So we're glad to have you. Don't sing. (laughs) 